0: Hello and welcome to the Science of Fiction. I'm Andrew Hodding and I'm joined today by Oliver Marsh. Hello. Hello. So, um, you
1: you were once a physicist. I, I was. Well, a physics student. I never actually uh, finished that degree for reasons mostly to do with my um, intellect. <laughs> um, but I, You're doing I, I,
0: that anyway, can't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: You can't see my, my face, which is currently contorted in the pain of memory. Um, yeah, so so it wasn't a happy relationship. It was it was very interesting. I found it all very interesting. Uh, it would just have been nice if they didn't ask me any
0: questions. Any which it turns out they do. They do. It's as if they want to justify you know your ability. Yeah, when you get to get the degree, that is. Well, yeah, but I kind of felt
1: you know I can talk about physics. I can sound like I'm interested. I can I can look very interested, um, especially if interested looks like having closed eyelids. But. Uh, as it turns out, you actually need to be able to do like maths and stuff.
0: D- did you ever draw like eyes on your eyelids in a lecture? Uh, n- no, I-, I wish I'd thought of that. I mean,
1: people did get them tattooed to save save the issue of having to do it each time, but um, that just got really weird.
0: That that would be different. So, w- what are you now if you're not a physicist? I'm currently doing a
1: masters in history, philosophy, and sociology of science, technology, and medicine. Um, to narrow that down slightly, I do sociology of science, sociology of public science. What people who aren't scientists believe about science, basically, it turns out it's actually quite a lot. So, um, what, what is sociology? Sociology is basically a study of how things like beliefs, um, good decisions, bad decisions, systems of power come to come to grow in social groups. Um, so, you don't have to do things like like philosophy. You don't have to say, "Well, why is this true? Why is this rational?" You just have to say, "Well, they think it's true, and they think it's rational." How did that happen? So sociology of science is really quite interesting, because it seems like saying, OK, we think that experiments are really good ways of showing how to produce facts. And then you can go, well, that's not obvious. Why is that? And then you can do things like history, trace it back to the 17th century. It's actually very political in its origins. It's all things like that.
0: So so you're telling us that the stuff I'm doing in the lab isn't, isn't all too bad?
1: It's not all too bad, no. But um, if the 17th century hadn't happened, you wouldn't be doing it.
0: Oh, well, it, it would have been difficult. It would have been an odd gap between the sixteenth and the seventeenth. Well, yes, well, but, or the eighteenth. But I mean, we also did invent counting at some point. And again, that's probably social. Counting, I, I don't know what 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 use is counting? That's what so many kids ask. Hmm. Well. What we're going to do now is we're going to play a track that you have selected so we can completely uh, blame you for it if it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've just realised that someone has removed off the deck the word CD, so this could get interesting, but I'm sure it'll work. Uh, First time.
2: We can sit here and lie, but we don't know the half of it in your defense. We've been talking.
0: So that was Katie Dunstall. Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, why did you pick that? Well, I think it's really uh, bizarre and strange song, but it's also quite cool in that whoever whoever she's talking about, dunno whether it's real person or not, is clearly someone who's a little bit distant, a little bit removed from everything, but somehow still inspiring some sort of awe, despite being some sort of um robot, it would seem. <laughs> and uh, that is how that is how scientists often seem to act in fiction, in films, books, plays, TV
0: that they are a lofty lofty Mm -hmm. beast
1: Mm -hmm. and no one really understands them as sort of people which is interesting their role is is often the scientist so they will be in in the cast list as doctor or professor so-and-so the scientist and somehow that's that's all the information you need really
0: that is also in the media though the the scientists have said oh yeah as if there's only one type of scientist Uh And there's, um,
1: there's definitely never any disagreement.
0: I like the idea that there are these meetings where scientists get together and have little chats. Mm.
1: Or, or there's just one of them doing all of the science.
0: Well, it's normally plural. Oh, oh yes, yes, so, so there, must it is. Be, there must be a little room with about like five of them mm. governing the entirety of the, a certain newspaper's output. Yeah.
1: Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, Brian Cox... So it's a good combination of people.
0: Yeah, you, I like how you only picked white men. Though. Yeah, another yeah. another from.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's blame the media, blame fiction, blame not fiction. fault. I'm a social construct.
0: So, so do you, other than you know this perception, you presume you have something to say about it.
1: Yeah, um, I was just thinking the other day. Um, yes, yeah, so scientists in fiction are perceived a certain way, and yeah, it's not just in fiction. There's a historian called Marcel Follette who did a study of real scientists on the real radio talking about real science. And notice that you could divide them all when they were talked about in newspapers and when reviews came out and when people were talking about them in the public domain. You could always divide them into certain stereotypes such as the hero. This was a particularly American one, the scientist as the hero or the scientist as recluse. The interesting thing is that that isn't just true in fiction for people who are scientists as their main role. So a good one there is Sherlock Holmes. Um, because he is a scientist. It's obviously not his main role in the book. His main role in the book is a detective and um, a generally quite annoying but quite awe-inspiring figure. <laughs> but he is a scientist. He's a chemist. I mean, he's, it's Victorian times so the idea of being a research chemist is a little bit um, problematic. But he is doing research chemistry. I get the sense that Conan Doyle expected that would play a much bigger role in the books than he thought. Because in the first book... Um, study in Scarlet. The Sherlock Holmes is is first introduced in a laboratory doing a chemical experiment, and in some of the later books, he does things like he does geological analysis of soils and he does various chemical experiments. But it crops up like four, five times in a series of over fifty books, uh, fifty stories, I should say. But it's still interesting that Sherlock Holmes is a scientist because to, to us. and or equally to the victorians that has a certain uh connotation of how you think about things how you go about things uh how you think about things and that is for sherlock holmes obviously quite a big thing he's a detective who thinks about things differently to everyone else uh and he even he even says things like it's a capital mistake to theorize before you have no data and that <laughs> is you know that is uh him being a detective but it was actually set on one of my um philosophy of science papers is, is this a good description of the scientific it's, it's, method
0: uh, yes and that brings us to another question what is the scientific method uh-huh. i know that's a pet peeve of yours
1: yes it is it is are, are we going to do that thing at the end where we well, do we, could,
0: we could do it at the end we and come could. back to mm. what it is but i mean for people who don't know what is the scientific method nominally? well if if you don't know
1: what the scientific method is well done that means you're basically anyone in the world because uh, scientists have this idea of a scientific method. And if you ask them, and again, this is very, very much a sociologist's job, if you ask them, what is it, they'll possibly give you a description. They might have to struggle, or they might just reel it off off the top of their head. But they don't all match up. It's usually things like, well, we do experiments, and they have to be repeatable. Um, But not all experiments are repeatable. A lot of current ones on climate change, for instance, are all about, well, we did this experiment at some point in the past, and now we're doing it now – and things have changed because of the climate that's that's not repeating the experiment the conditions have changed that's the whole point
0: but i mean this is why it's very difficult to Mm. because something like social science um that isn't repeatable by definition so some people say it isn't a science Mm -hmm. but then of course there are other reasons why it's got the name science on the end. it wasn't just stuck there to get better grant money or maybe it was but i I think it's older than that i think yeah it's
1: uh, well the idea of a social science that things being social sciences goes back to start the 20th century, really quite early so in the it's, 20th it's century, not,
0: it was not just a way to make more money.
1: Uh, well, it probably it was probably a way to make money and also prestige. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a biggie. I mean, money's the biggie now. We're in a recession, but there's definitely been a prestige recessions in the past, particularly in like psychology and sociology. They live in permanent prestige recessions. But
0: it, it is interesting because the arts are often held in a lofty way.
1: Yes, as are the sciences. But um,
0: but some against each other. That's more. Mm-hmm,
1: thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that uh, social sciences. Are often seen as bridging that divide, but I I disagree with that. Um, and again, I was going to going to talk about this later, but but as it's as it's brought up now, um, I'll just rewrite all of my notes very quickly. Uh, back in a minute. Uh, no, but basically, science and fiction are actually really useful things to talk about because science, sociologists would argue, is created. It's not something you don't discover things. You you create them. You look at the natural world and you create systems that put things into order and perspective and organisation art is created as well but what you'd hope with science is is that the creation is constrained by what you've actually seen by what's there in nature so you're not just inventing things completely freely in art and fiction you'd hope you're inventing things pretty freely you don't you don't want to be saying what everyone else is saying you don't want to be told what you have to say or given rules as to what you have to say obviously that does happen but that's mostly to make sure that people can understand you know a great example is um when people watch uh japanese films is a it's a culture of film that you have to get into because it it, acting does it is done an entirely different way in japanese films it's not facially you're not supposed to move very much so when uh western film uh, filmgoers watch a lot of japanese films they they often don't get it first because the emotional nuances just aren't expressed how we would expect that but that it's kind of like science because you've got these sort of constraints that mean people have to have people people have to be able to understand science so that's why we do things like maths it's a language that everyone can share but there is a difference in that ultimately at its heart science is supposed to be constrained by by a lot of rules by nature yeah. whereas art it benefits from getting rid of constraints we don't want a set of a set of rules that all art has to follow
0: yeah, I mean, that reminds me a lot of um, Byzantine art. Is like one of the few arts I've ever actually been t- showed to look at. And it's just like the church constrained how art was done hmm. for a long while. And that, you know, eventually came out the other side. I think that was around the Renaissance. Uh, I'm a scientist, not an artist, so if I'm totally wrong on this, sorry, uh, email in and correct me. But the point was, there were these long periods where people said, this is how you do art. And it just meant we got a lot of art that was very formulaic and very... It was used to tell a story more than it was used to express something mm.
1: but the interesting thing uh, about the period you're talking about is science doesn't exist it's yes. natural philosophy um and there's a really the word artificial i discovered the other day originally and in fact probably around the time you're talking about meant like a science or an art <laughs> that that was what artificial meant um so so it is tricky because we do live in a world where we are quite used to this divide between art and science but yeah certainly at one point art was supposed to be very rule constrained Uh, it's just nowadays I think we we value creativity. So, for instance, when um, Anthony Burgess writes a clockwork, Orange invents an entirely new language, everyone goes, wow, that's great. Well done, Anthony Burgess. If you invented entirely new maths... You have to have some sort of justification for for it. Besides, well, it's really cool, isn't it? I've invented something new.
0: I I, I suspect there are mathematicians out there who would say that, though.
1: Uh, yes. I,
0: I've met ones like that. Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, it is an interesting world that you can do. This. And I mean, art has got to the point now that some say here is a pile of bricks, you know, quite mm-hmm. famous art piece, and people go, "That's rubbish." But the point is, we accept it can be art. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you have to like it.
1: Mm-hmm. Whereas science, we'd say no. No, just because one person likes it or thinks it's science doesn't make it science.
0: Yes, and we got people like you making it difficult. Mm -hmm. Right, so I think we'll go on to your next track.
3: It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Have struck for fame Cause Lennon's on sale again See the mice in their million hordes From Ibiza to the Norfolk broads Blue Britannia is out of bounds To my mother, my dog and clowns But the film is a sad thing for, Cause I wrote it ten times or more
4: it's about to be rent again As I ask you to vote for
0: So that was life on mars by david bowie yes does anyone know which w- how to say a surname
1: if so shout loud yes We're uh, underground
0: I, 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 people dispute it so often mm. I, i'm now totally confused i, I don't
1: he probably changes it himself he's that kind <laughs> of guy
0: well he did change it. Does ziggy stardust as a different name or just a different character
1: oh oh good question i don't know probably a different character because he's not still doing it he's which would imply him. ziggy stardust had died and uh David Bowie was a murderer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he cloned himself and then <laughs> murdered himself. That's a lot. This so is where
1: we're going to get so much litigation now. No,
0: no, yeah. Um, everything you hear in this radio show about mm. David Bowie, Bowie, Eddie, or any previous incarnation mm. of The Gentleman may be fictional. Yeah.
1: Um, he has got different coloured eyes, which is quite
0: interesting. That is quite cool. And is
1: a spawn of the devil. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, is that what different coloured eyes mean? Mm. Mm.
1: It's, it's just genetics.
0: Um, yes, we'll get... Um, send your complaints to <laughs> Oliver.marsh. At, um, <laughs> so... Why that song? Well, it's
1: about film. Yes. I mean, it's about the, the, the silver screen. And it's called Life on Mars, which is, I, I mean, I actually don't know when the song was, was written and what, f- what films are coming out at the time. But the fact that, that one of the first things that come to mind when you think of the cinema is Life on Mars and Aliens is really quite... They've still well, not found it, though. They've st- still not found Mars. I it's think they bad. did.
0: They found Mars. Yeah. But they landed a mini on it. Yeah, it with a sky crane
1: mm.
0: no, it, talk, with, that was the
1: engineering department here wasn't it it was one of their pranks <laughs> get a mini onto Mars and no one knows how
0: <laughs> that would be brilliant <laughs> one day the comes up there's a mini there <laughs> um, no but the sky crane amazes me because it's one of those things that if someone put that in a movie you go that's ridiculous mm. and then they went and did it
1: yeah <laughs> Well, they've done a lot. I mean, a lot of ridiculous... A lot of sort of sciencey things look ridiculous when you sort of actually hear about them. So the the Curiosity rover everyone's really excited about, what's it move at, like five miles an hour? It's really impressive. If you sort
0: of saw it moving on Earth, you'd go, say, what? But can can it go quicker? It's just the fact it takes a while to check where it's going. Because you wouldn't want it to go too quickly, would you? No. You you've got eight minutes before you find out where it's going.
1: Yeah, and quite a lot of quite a lot of muddy road like If, a, if of... I
0: slept for eight minutes in my car going down the motorway, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's beyond disastrous. <laughs> yeah,
1: although it has to be said. If Martian motorways were as busy as human mo- Earth motorways, well, we, we'd get a lot more excited.
0: And <laughs> life would definitely be easier <laughs> to were, find.
1: There was a great thing when they first started looking for life on Mars. Carl Sagan and the uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, because he was just obsessed with aliens, they, they took, before they'd landed things on Mars, they took photos from the atmosphere. And, um,. And they said, oh, we haven't seen anything, This is there's clearly no life on Mars. He said, well, yes, but what you've done is you've taken a resolution that means if you were looking at Earth, you'd have missed elephants. <laughs> so I'm not prepared to buy that there's no life there yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean, people thought there were canals on Mars and all these other theories. Mm.
1: That was um, Lowell, or Lovell, I can never remember. The we guy back. who made the telescope. Yeah, yes. we're back, back onto the, the Bowie-Bowie thing, but yeah. uh, a hundred years or so ago, he did. He did, and he got very excited, and it took, took decades to debunk him fully.
0: Well, that was bad pictures, basically, wasn't it? And the fact that the brain has a bad habit of seeing things that aren't there,
1: mm. Mm. which which is a problem in in science, has to be said. I've spent the last six weeks writing about that, so I'm now twitching manically.
0: <laughs> no, no, and it, it, you know it is a problem. You know, uh, formally, it's confirmational bias, isn't it?
1: Uh, well, there's, there's loads of different ones. There's, um, well, for instance, illusions. It turns out when you look at illusions. So a really cool one I've just been looking at recently is. Uh, Psychologist called Richard Gregory, who was around um, until fairly recently. I think he died in two thousand and ten, maybe.
3: Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, something like that. He was, but he was quite a big, big deal. But he did lots of stuff in illusions. And there's, um,
0: so did he have that picture? Where it's, is it a duck? Is it a rabbit? Is it a duck, he, oh, is he it
1: used ra- that loads. Uh, I mean, that that is. I mean, he nicked that from the philosophers. It has to be said because <laughs> I mean, that's that's the logo of um, Cambridge University Philosophy Department. You see them walking around with bags <laughs> with that on. Um, but he had this really cool, which is he, you have uh, a face mask and then right next to it you have exactly the same face mask but hollow so one's concave and one's convex and you look you see them both pretty much exactly the same
0: oh so these were th- real 3D models yeah yeah now I think I've seen one of these uh, rotating and that's mm. actually really freaky because you, you know it's hollow I and mean, then it go, goes the other way around it popped and even if most optical illusions when you know mm. what it is you can stop it being an illusion yeah i can do that
1: it's it's called um conceptual versus perceptual knowledge and even when you've got with the face the conceptual knowledge that it's a hollow face your perceptual knowledge still goes no 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 sorry other way around when you've got the perceptual knowledge that it's a hollow face your conceptual knowledge still goes no that's not what a face looks like a face looks like it's, it sticks out that's what a face does um but these things are rife and uh the, the whole point of that is you don't see things and then turn that into what you know what you already know affects how you see things yeah. which is a uh, of an issue it's a a massive issue which Mm. is
0: why you try to make something which is not open to interpretation Mm. which it always is
1: yeah or also why um you communicate with lots of different people and you try and get into a system where you 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 basically teach all the scientists in your group how to see the same way because if you've got this prior knowledge of how to see things then you know when you're looking at say a graph you don't look for the color that's that's what you're supposed to be looking for <laughs> you look for the lines you you look at the important things and you discount all of the details if you're a geologist you don't look at all of the things in the rock because that would be really confusing you look at you look for the strata or whatever you're trained to look for
0: yeah we'll let you off you're not a geologist no no not today.
1: no <laughs> never know I, I managed to get through quite a few other things <laughs> in, in my time so uh, don't rule it out do rule it out
0: um so yeah so but just Sagan, mm-hmm. um mad on science mad on life on mars mm. um also quite into aliens in general
1: yeah oh he was absolutely obsessed from the age of about six he spent pretty much his entire life i mean he started towards the end of his life going okay there might not be aliens but you could always tell there was this little little bit of a set i really want there to be i really and he did his justification was purely this if we found aliens it would be the most uh the best discovery mankind has ever made, which I think is questionable, but says says something about his, his where he was coming from, from a psychological point of view. It's also interesting when you go through his life, how it changes in, in sort of tone. So at one point, it's just particularly during the space races, we should explore the universe, we should understand everything about the universe and see all these, these aliens. You know, we have to know everything, we have to meet everything. And then during the Cold War, it starts taking on much more of a tone of, if there are aliens in the universe who are more technologically advanced than us, we know that technological advancement doesn't necessarily kill all the population of a planet. <laughs> so we might survive this one, but if we don't find any aliens that are more intelligent and more developed than us, well, maybe it's a sort of natural law that all, all things destroy themselves eventually.
0: Which is, which is just slightly depressing and Very, terrifying, yeah. but quite quite possible. Mm.
1: Uh, yeah Well Martin Rees isn't he and this was about 10 years ago Wrote a book predicting that we had 50 years left
0: <laughs> Oh well yeah. um,
1: Martin Rees on the other hand Is highly unlikely to live another 40 years So it's alright for him
0: It's just all people obsessed It's like singularity Robots are going to destroy us You know every, So many ways the world's going to end
1: hmm. But Newton thought the world was, was going to end um, In 2012 maybe
0: so, uh, was was it, That would make it the same as the main colour Yeah,
1: it, it's, which is why I'm slightly Sceptical, because I think my brain might be doing that Illusion thing and putting, putting a date of already Associated, it was, it was in the 2000s, it might be 2100 actually He was, he was in part of a sect called the Millenarians Who believed that the, the world had a, had a sort of set Time limit and then God was going to come and eat it Or something, I'm possibly paraphrasing
0: Paraphrasing and just adding in yeah. extra detail <clears throat> um, Yeah Cool, Newton in the world Cultage, we should, mm. we should probably try and revive that Hmm. Well, it's probably
1: not very difficult
0: Uh, Well, Well, last year just people couldn't work out Hmm. and buy another calendar
1: Yeah
2: (laughs)
5: There's no business like show business like no business I know Everything about it is appealing Everything that traffic will allow Nowhere could you get that be feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. There's no people like show people. They smile when they are long. Yesterday they told you you would not go far. That night you opened and there you are. Next day on your dressing room they costumes, the scenery, the makeup, the props, the audience that lifts you when you're down the headaches, the heartaches the backaches, the flops the sheriff who escorts you out of town the opening when your heart beats like a drum the closing when the customers don't come word before the show has started, that your favorite uncle died at dawn, and top of that Japan might have parted. you're broken hearted, but you go on.
3: There's no people like show, people they smile when they are low,
5: even with a turkey that you know Change it for us.
0: welcome back to the science of fiction and yeah. that was ethel merman mm-hmm. i believe that's the show must go on
1: no it's no business like show business ah which has been the source of many many puns over the years um i actually uh, the, uh, the whole point of that was i want to talk about science in the theater but we i've got a great fact about science uh, on the screen which i meant to talk about last last song but i'm gonna bring it up anyway because um i'm not a scientist so i ain't bound by no rules of rationality <laughs> mate. Um, yeah, I was, I was just looking, I was doing a bit of reading for this show, and I, f- I found this great fact that um, Fritz Lang, who directed Metropolis, most famously, also did a film in 1929 called Frau im Month, which is German for Woman on the Moon. And he had some scientific advisors that he hired, specially, and they said, by the way, you know there's no atmosphere on the moon? And he said, well, we're having an atmosphere on our moon, they were, but there's just no atmosphere on the moon. He went, OK, this is a silent film. It's a, it's a romance. How are we going to do this if they're all in diving suits? We're having an atmosphere on the moon. So what he did, Fritz Lang, was he actually did a bit of digging in the scientific literature. And uh, he found this theory from 1856 by a guy called Peter Andreas Hansen that said, oh, there might be an atmosphere on the moon. So this, this theory was, you know, 60 years out of date or more. And then he just said, well, you scientists you scientific advisors you're working with this theory i want you to calculate if there was an atmosphere on the moon like hansen says how how fast would the rocket land how would it land etc so he created this sort of fake world in which there was an atmosphere on the moon and then everything followed very logically and mathematically from there
0: you've, you've also got a warning in a silent movie hmm. how many people are checking the descent rate of the rocket
1: well i mean in a non-silent film i mean oh, yeah, how, even- it's but um deep impact the the rotation period of the comet in that was a huge huge issue because they worried people would calculate it and they had a big fight because um the scientists the scientific advisors said uh normal rotation period would be 10 hours and they you know did cgi and they said that's really slow that just looks really boring can we change it so they said okay it's normally ten hours, but it varies. And they said, Okay, what's the fastest that a comet ever rotates? They went, four hours. They went, Okay, that's what we're using. So it's still still plausible. Still plausible. But also I mean the Fritz Lag thing at the time, like nowadays if you did a film where there was no atmos- where there was an atmosphere on the moon, you'd just be laughed out of the cinema. Whereas at the time, fair few people knew about it, but it certainly wasn't the sort of thing that people people thought oh this is this is ridiculous i i know this people would be like is there an atmosphere on the moon i don't know i've never really thought about it not been there not been there no uh, no because nowadays everyone has okay. you know, i have you have we we are there now
0: yes it's the cam fm lunar mm. studio there's actually
1: there's actually a delay on the recording so if anything major has happened on earth we don't know about it I mean, we might have no listeners the carl sagan hypothesis might have come true and we are we are the only survivors
0: we're the only survivors from the, the cam fm lunar base mm. um I feel we should have a cool sign, but we can do it another day. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, back to Ethel. Back uh, to Ethel. And uh, science in theatre.
1: In theatre, yeah. Because that is sometimes quite tricky, because you don't have CGI. You know, for science fiction films, CGI of some description, or, well, maybe not CGI, but... Special effects. Special effects of some description are are usually pretty, pretty prevalent. That's harder to do in plays. I mean, I... I've never actually seen this. I bet it's been done, but I bet it's normally done in sort of um, traveling children's theatre for science children's theatre, which is great. You know, I've seen a couple of those, and uh, I wish there was, was there was plenty more of those around. But I've never seen this in a sort of play written by a playwright or in a national theatre where they do experiments on stage or they they take the sort of Royal Institution thing of they have a big chemical thing happening on stage and everyone go ooh and that's exciting. Normally, again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier when science is on stage and when science is in a play it's usually for the scientists it's usually for their sort of personality traits and quirks so um uh, Bertolt brecht wrote life of galileo about his battle with the church and in that galileo is again probably based on some biographical evidence he's this very irascible angry irate but also very aloof individual who's talked about and no one can really ever understand him and he gets this sort of awe-inspiring presence as a result he's a bit sort of like hamlet in that respect uh similarly tom stoppard who's another one of these playwrights who just likes to write on everything and anything <laughs> right a play called it's, it's very interesting if i've never actually seen it and i'm not sure i'd understand it if i did but it's called hapgood and basically he's read some quantum mechanics well, not actual quantum mechanics. I don't know, it's Tom Stoppard he might have done. But he, he's read something about quantum physics and uh, the double-slip paradox and thought, what's really interesting is this is like spies. Because, like, spies and espionage, you don't know where anyone is at any one time. You don't know what's happening exactly. You've only got bits of information. So it creates this spy drama based on on quantum physics, which is really interesting. But again, there's a character in that who is the scientist and everyone else has kind of got a bit of scientific information, but he's the one who goes, oh, yeah, this is what's actually happening here. Um, I won't do the spoiler, but it's, it's a really good play if you get the chance to read it. Read the play. Yeah.
0: Don't put on often, then?
1: I've I've never actually heard of a production of it being put on. But, um, better go and get that together. Mm. Which And we are in Cambridge, and it is Tom Stoppard, so that is <laughs> that is quite unusual.
0: We have a chance. Mm. Uh, but one play that is on, and you were just telling me it's just been uh, made by the BBC into mm. a radio show, is Copenhagen. Yeah,
1: Michael Frayne's play, which that is really different, because... Of the three characters in it, two of them are scientists: Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, real scientists, historical scientists. And um, the third character is Niels Bohr's wife, who is similarly pretty pretty hot on science. She used to transcribe a lot of his stuff and help him with with the maths. So. There isn't this situation where a scientist has to explain to the poor Luddites what science is and what they're doing. Whenever they have a scientific conversation, they'll understand exactly what's going on. And you do get things just chucked in like, oh, I'll calculate the collisional cross-section and stuff. So Freud isn't really afraid of putting off his audience. So there's the Stephen Hawking thing where he was told every equation you put in your book will halve audiences. I'm not entirely sure about that. I think you can put any sort of science in as long as it doesn't Bog people down; they get mired in. You just go through it, and it's actually quite realistic because that is how we imagine scientists talk all the time, throwing in complicated terms that they understand.
0: Well, that, that's most of a Star Trek script. Mm. Just random. I mean, I know that's all techno babble rather than real science, but you know, they're
1: hard to distinguish sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> particularly <laughs> modern science. <laughs> so, the Large Hadron Collider is that engineering or is it science?
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that is another interesting one. Mm. When is it science? When is it engineering? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Copenhagen, which I love, is that it is just a wonderful people play. It mm. is a wonderful story about people
1: and about morals. I mean, the moral issues, the moral questions, are much harder than the science questions. In that, the, the science questions they go through quite quickly. Although, as you say, it is interesting. It is about people. They are obviously they've got this kind of particularly if you know, and a lot of the people who come to see this play presumably do know the background. So Heisenberg and Bohr have already got this this awe and this majesty. And what Frey does, he, he, he shows them warts and all. He, he tells, he has Boer tell a story about when Heisenberg made an epic miscalculation that might have, might have stopped the Germans having the atomic bomb. I mean, that's, that's the level of miscalculation we're talking about.
0: But there is a massive question in the. Well, I think the main thing that plays about that isn't so much about science, it's about this question of what is true? What, was, what part of the memories are real memories? Mm. What parts are false memories? And what parts was... Heisenberg doing what he's doing because he didn't want to succeed, and hmm. was he sabotaging himself? And is I,
1: Heisenberg lying to himself? Is he lying to Bohr? Is Bohr misremembering? Is Bohr lying somewhere along the line?
0: And I, I don't think the play ever wants to answer any of those questions. It's it
1: just—I don't think. I mean, Frame went through all of because a lot of the correspondence is very well recorded because Beriade Heisenberg for quite a while was kept as a, in England as a prisoner. Yep. Uh, in a they didn't know this at the time, but in a bugged. Uh, area so all of heisenberg's conversations are recorded um and a lot of them do contradict each other and contradict things he said later and contradict things he said earlier so no one really knows the answer the interesting thing is of course that Frayne then goes well exactly the stuff that heisenberg was doing science of uncertainty is also in his morality in his in his memories and when well i mean the parallels keep going on when i saw it on stage in edinburgh in 2010 they uh, had had a scene where they were talking about quantum mechanics and the character Magritte, i think she's called uh niels Bohr's wife is standing in the middle of the stage and heisenberg and Bohr start orbiting her like she's a nucleus and and they're having this conversation as they're doing that and it's done completely naturally and it just looked very very funky i don't i don't know how how obvious it would be if you didn't know the science but of course he can expect that people coming to this this play would possibly be know about the science but then maybe not you know it's it's a play about world war history as well about the atom bomb
0: yeah and prejudice
1: and prejudice and and just generally guilt
0: I, I do remember one one line that stuck with me was i think it's heisenberg says to Bohr, you should have come with us and he says yes what with a little yellow badge on me yeah
1: it's it's uh, skiing heisenberg oh, that saying it. you should come skiing with us and, and Bohr goes yes the character is magritte yes maybe magritte could be kind enough to sew a yellow star on my ski jacket yeah and, and there's a very long pause <laughs>
0: Right, well, with that, we'll go on to your next track.
3: Park the car at the side of the road You should know Time's tide will smother you And I will too When you laugh about people They feel so very lonely Their only desire is to die It doesn't make me smile I wish I could laugh But that joke isn't funny anymore It's too close to home And it's too near the ball. It's too close to home
0: so welcome back to uh the science of fiction and that was the smiths mm-hmm. that joke isn't funny anymore you see I, i've got cautious i haven't got the last song wrong oh yes
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, i'd forgotten that but now i've remembered <laughs> and now i've remembered it again i'll uh, i'll remember it forever
0: um <laughs> yeah i do have show notes they're just just on my phone which keeps turning off at inopportune mm. moments um so jokes that aren't funny anymore
1: yes or jokes that are funny anymore it's it's um irrelevant in this particular discussion i just want to talk about science in comedy science in jokes because again that that like we, what we were saying earlier there's a sort of art science divide and jokes and comedy very much fall on the arts humanities side It's subjective some people find it funny some people don't well not necessarily all comedy because that'd be really sad but some people find certain jokes funny and other jokes not and uh we don't then go well something must be wrong because we're not all agreeing which is what would happen in science i suppose but in jokes we just go oh, it's just a personal thing but there is a very strong sort of internal almost hypothesis forming scientific method-esque part to jokes you're making a prediction you're making a hypothesis that this is funny you need to set up the prior knowledge of the audience so they can get it you need to do the you need to make sure that everyone knows everything that you're talking about which is why um The Bright Club is always interesting. Yes,
0: so Bright Club being a self-comedy events around the UK, including Cambridge, Mm -hmm. where people who do research, whether arts, humanities or sciences, get up on stage and try and make comedy with no previous experience.
1: Hmm. And that's always interesting because I'd say the majority of the performers are science performers. Yeah,
0: I mean, but that's... I mean, that's a different discussion. Why is it easier to get people to do public engagement from the sciences than mm. any other field? Mm. I think we could spend a long time talking about that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, but the 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 point is that tends to mean that the audience who come in are also drawn from their labs, their their other undergraduate science buddies, and they have that prior knowledge already, yep. which means that the jokes take a very different form, uh, as you as you'd expect. Normally, when I'm doing sort of quite sciencey stand-up. I have to i have to put a lot more work into making sure everyone's got the same knowledge beforehand just to make it so that, that that logical step of a b c and people go oh yes i understand how that happened uh still still works
0: yeah i mean just bringing up something about a second differential hmm. to a standard audience is going to lose them a bit hmm. unless you happen to be in the center of cern when making it. yeah
1: the the um the issue then comes from the fact that the footlights committee are almost entirely humanities students and uh I, I have fell foul of this a few times. <laughs> yeah, it turns out my, my, my routine about, about physics and the large Hadron Collider. There's a lot of lot of knowledge I didn't realise a lot of people don't have until you're there and there's silence. And that that I mean that I'd recommend that for all public engagement in science because when when you get if you get it wrong as to the basic knowledge of your audience you're left with a lo- lot of people looking at you very stonily that's that's a pretty good encouragement to make sure your audience knows about science. Yeah, you, you don't try to do that twice no, no no definitely not um but i i want to talk about in particular um douglas adams because i mean he what, what does he do law or something his degree
0: i actually don't know it was
1: something it was either law or history something like that all
0: i know is he wrote funny books
1: yeah yeah he well and science books because he used to come to natsuki lectures when he was at cambridge uh just because he was interested like that but his jokes have a very strong sort of logic to them he he does you know very very sort of rationally dissect a very real situation and go well let's let's look at the assumptions we've made here and a lot of them are false ergo humor occurs there's a there's a great one where he says there's there's an an alien battle fleet that decides it's declaring war on another alien civilization far across the universe so they assemble all of their ships and all of their weapons they fly it across the universe and unfortunately Earth happens to be in the way and they decide they're just going to bulldoze straight through Earth. And of course, that would be bad. So all this space uh, fleet descends on Earth and then due to a massive miscalculation of scale, the entire fleet is swallowed by a small dog. And that's that's just a great sort of thing where you, you can imagine it always being a scientific paper, someone going like, in... in uh holding 2003 holding makes the assumption that the scale of these two things is entirely symmetrical but as it happens it isn't so he's a fool sort of uh, thing thank you i had to think of a name and, and as as we've established we're the only humans left alive. i i thought i'd go for yours
0: yeah it so could be another
1: holding there are others
0: be, uh, there are a few um but yes yeah, so, i mean Douglas adams he's strange because he does you know like that's one example but other stuff is just so surreal mm. like like vogon poetry
1: yeah yeah and but there's a... I can't remember who it is. I think it's... Michael Palin points out that in a lot of surreal comedy, particularly John Cleese... John Cleese, he says, is very scientific when it comes to writing jokes, even though it's very surreal. Because what John Cleese does is he creates a very surreal initial condition and then say, right, following from this initial condition, everything has to make sense. So even in surreality, as long as you, the audience, take that step into this surreal world where something is different, there's just a tweak, like... A shopkeeper doesn't want to take a parrot back even though it's clearly dead as long as you take that step everything else follows
0: yeah and 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 people follow with you because otherwise because comedy is all about building this connection with the Mm. audience and if you kept changing random directions all the time they'll never get what you're saying yeah
1: it's like when when you know really surreal comedy doesn't appeal to a lot of people because they they just don't make that they have to keep they're being asked to continually make leaps of logic that they don't necessarily want to do and again i suppose you could i mean i'm possibly pushing it here but draw a parallel with a science or maths paper that kept saying well we'll make this assumption that might be false but let's and then another one and then another one and oh by the end we've got a theory they'll go well yeah but along the way you've lost me so you've had many opportunities to lose me
0: i mean one of the interesting things about maths of course is that uh, i really wish i could remember whose theorem it is but this idea that if you have a maths theory that's totally consistent then you have an error somewhere in <laughs> the definition yes and if you don't have any errors in the definition there are places <coughs> where it cannot Basically, be proven.
1: Yeah, I've um, never heard that before, but that's, uh, that's and
0: uh, well, the idea that you can't prove everything in maths upset mm. a lot of people, and I've, it's a very simple proof, um, and it's quite important because that's why we get things like the three-body problem cannot mm. be solved if you've got three objects orbiting each other for a completely mathematical example. You can solve simple cases where mm. simple can still be quite complicated, but individual cases. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was quite a big deal that upset a lot of people because people thought maths was perfect so you could solve everything and actually what you find out is no you can't
1: well it's um, in the sociology of scientific knowledge there's a very very influential I would go as far as saying revolutionary uh, but that's possibly just because I've been in email contact with him and I <laughs> feel really important author called David Bloor who in 1976 wrote a book called Knowledge and Social Imagery where the argument was basically I can find social influences and sociological analysis in any subject and 50% of the book is devoted to maths. Because his argument is, if I can find social influences in maths, I've won. Sociology's <laughs> won. It's got everything.
0: It's got, let's, let's just annoy the mathematicians.
1: Basically. I don't think any mathematicians actually read the book, but philosophers did, and they got... Uh...
0: You have to be careful about mathematicians. They're very good at aiming projectiles through windows. Are they? <laughs> not not as good as engineers. No,
1: no. Because, I, I mean, well, again, going back to the, the war... Always going back to the war. I'm actually in a, a rocking armchair as we speak, wearing elbow patches. I'm actually I'm actually 103. Uh, I've just got a very uh, good voice for my age. I hope. <laughs> and he's now looking at me like no. no. Um, but they they always said that the Germans at the time had the best physicists in the world. They had Heisenberg. They had loads. I mean, yeah, America had Einstein, but he wasn't involved in the atomic bomb. And after. you
0: may notice where he came from,
1: uh, which is not Germany. Well, it was Germany originally, but then Switzerland. Then yeah. yeah um but he yeah he he Einstein well, isn't a standard american no it, yeah. no <laughs> well you know just, you can never be sure <laughs> there's a little I've, 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 quite a few of the americans i know in fact, possibly the majority of americans i know are steins
0: oh, yeah, that,
1: but there's a reason also that, probably but irish so <laughs> um but yeah where was i oh yeah so so the america uh, the germans had like the best repertoire of physics knowledge and physics skills in the world the americans built the bomb because they had engineers so while the physicists were calculating everything from scratch and going right let's work with a flat sheet because it makes the math easy the engineers are going yeah we've built bombs we know how bombs work uh, this is a different one you physicists work out the difference but uh, we can just tell you from experience you want a metal case fine that's how it goes well of course to. in
0: the in the case of the plutonium bomb there was a lot of explosives technology needed anyway because mm. they had to make this uh compression wave go in- spherically inwards and mm. shaped charges were complicated. Mm. Uh, but, but not da- just
1: complicated mathematically, but not only that, you need to have some system to make sure everything fires simultaneously. Well, some
0: people thought it was impossible, mm. but, but people had already been doing it, so the right bomb people got on the case. Yeah. No, you're right, it was the engineers who knew how to do the engineering.
1: Mm.
0: Like, these engineers get everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they probably landed that thing on Mars, not the physicists. They
1: probably made Mars. They made it so, Originally.
0: <laughs> That's Douglas Adams again. Yeah, yeah,
1: probably <laughs> that's mice isn't it mice. Engineering mice, well yeah. mice
0: pay the contractors
1: yeah yes yeah that's it if
0: you ever know anything about contractors like that I mean it would never ever get done
1: hmm maybe well depends what contracts the mice are paying they are more intelligent than us. maybe they know something maybe, don't. maybe they know they've got how. a better yellow pages
0: <laughs> the international directory of mice yellow pages
1: Yeah.
4: about the grains every little
0: That was Infitesimal by Mother Mother, and that's all we have time for. So, uh, thank you for joining us, Ollie.
1: Mm, well, thanks very much for having me. It's been, it's been great and lovely and sciencey. It's uh, always good.
0: For a sociologist, that's. Yes,
1: it. yeah, you've convinced me. <laughs> convinced you. <laughs> Back to physics. <laughs>